Last week we spoke to you from the 13th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. This morning I'd like to just take a look at the book of Jeremiah in general. Uh, the book of Jeremiah is about Jeremiah. It is about Jeremiah being called of God to be a prophet unto the nations, not only the nation of uh, Israel, uh, Israel and Judah, but also he was a prophet unto the Philistines, the Moabites, the Assyrians, and the Egyptians, and even the, the Babylonians. Jeremiah was 20 years old when he began to uh, carry out his duty responsibilities as a prophet that God gave to him in the first chapter of Jeremiah. And this all takes place about 600 years B.C., about 600 years before the arrival of Christ. Uh, we find where uh, the scriptures teach us that he came from a priestly family. Well, we find uh, a very familiar verse, but very important verse in the opening verses of chapter 1, when the Lord said concerning Jeremiah, Before I formed thee in thy mother's belly, I knew thee. Before thou came forth in thy mother's womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee to be a prophet unto the nations. There was three things here that God says about Jeremiah uh, that took place before Jeremiah was ever born. God knew him, and God sanctified him, and God ordained him. He ordained him again to be a prophet to the nations. We find that Jeremiah, upon hearing about this, uh, felt very inadequate, unqualified to go forth. That's usually a, a, a sign that you look for when God calls a man. When God calls a man to do something, it should not fill him with pride. It should not exalt him. It should really bring him down when he sees the awesomeness of what's under consideration. It should cause him to take an inward look and see how inadequate he is, how much uh, that he would need the Lord's help to be successful in going forward. And this was the attitude of Jeremiah. But the Lord assured Jeremiah, Jeremiah that he would be with him, and he would put his words in his mouth for him to speak. And he says, I have set thee this day over the nations and the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to plant, and to build. That's quite a task, isn't it? Quite a challenge that he was going to have to do these things. He was going to have to root out some things. He was going to have to pull down some things. He was going to have to destroy some things. And then he was to restore from the standpoint of planting and building. So that's what the Lord tells Jeremiah. He tells Jeremiah, I will make thee as a defense city. He says, you shall be a, a, a city that has pillars that are iron. And he says, and gates that are brass. And he says, they will not be able to penetrate this city. Now, Jeremiah did not know all the sufferings that he was going to have to experience in being a prophet to God. But he had the assurance of these things, that God would be with him. He would be like a strong city that could not be penetrated. The enemy could not get inside the city. God would be his fortification. God would be his defense. That's what Jeremiah had to go on. The book of Jeremiah is about Israel in a backsliding condition. We find that Israel had been blessed mightily of God. When you begin to review the history of Israel, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible and amazing history. How that God formed them to begin with. And God created them. And God blessed them to become a nation. When he delivered them out of Egypt, at this particular point, they have been developed into a nation. As they came from the 12 tribes of Jacob, there was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons. He created them for His glory. He created them to bring His Son into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ was born among the Jewish people. Time and time again, the enemy is trying to destroy this nation. But God in His providence and His power never allowed that to happen. And so when the Lord came into this world, the Jewish nation was still intact. They had had their sufferings and their problems and their difficulties and their persecutions, but they were still intact. Uh, we find in the book of Genesis chapter 49 where the Lord spoke about, uh, Abraham spoke about his fourth son in the name of Judah. He said, the lawgiver shall not depart from his feet. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The lawgiver shall not depart from his feet until Shiloh come. Now that prophecy uh, was hundreds and hundreds of years before it was fulfilled, but it was fulfilled. Now in taking a look at this book, and this is again a little bit of the summary of it and the history of it you're going to see where God charges Israel as being an adulterous wife. 
In the Old Testament, uh, we have a picture of God and his relationship to Israel as that of a husband and a wife, um, a bridegroom and a bride. And she had lived a very adulterous life because she lived a very idolatrous life. Every time Israel went into idolatry, they were committing adultery against God who had formed them and created them. And this displeased God, as you would imagine. It grieved God, this people who he had blessed so mightily, so incredibly. Uh, when you see the 10 plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea parting, uh, the Jordan parting, how he took care of them in the wilderness, where they had clothes that never wore out and shoes never wore out, and they got water out of a rock, and he sent manna down from heaven and quail down from heaven to sustain them for 40 years. And then to see how they would respond by being so unfaithful to him and so ungrateful to him and so unthankful to him. And this is their situation in Jeremiah. He calls them stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious, adulterous, uh, a people that would not hearken. I mentioned last Sunday that expression is used frequently in the book of Jeremiah when the word of God would come to them. And next thing we read is that they hearken not. They would not obey. They obeyed not and they hearkened not. So as a result of that, God's going to bring judgment upon them and he's going to bring a nation from the north, which is the Babylonian nation. He's going to use them as his servant and he will bring them down there and they will, the Babylonians will destroy the city of Jerusalem and they will take away uh, a great many of the Israelites into captivity. Some were slain, some were taken into captivity and there was a few that remained there. And God promised this is going to happen. Jeremiah had to deal with false prophets. And the false prophets said, these things will not happen. The false prophets said, oh, you may go into captivity, but it'd be just for a short time. And the people listened to those words rather than the words of Jeremiah. And when they didn't like Jeremiah's words, which was about 90% of the time, perhaps, you'll find where they threatened his life and put him into a pit, put him into a dungeon, dungeon, he spent probably as much time in a dungeon as he did on the outside of it. And uh, if somebody, uh, if God calls a man to preach and says, whose ministry would you like to have one like, Jeremiah be the last one. I can assure you, he would be last on the list. So this is just a kind of a, a view, you might say, as you begin to read Jeremiah, historically, what the situation was. I don't know when I've ever enjoyed reading Jeremiah any more than I have this time. And those who are following along with the Bible reading on the, you know, outline that's out front, you're reading in the book of Jeremiah. You're getting close to the end right now. But you've got about three-fourths of the book of Jeremiah under your belt, so to speak. And somebody, um, you know, says, well, I, I don't read the Bible. I mean, I've heard this before, not from old Baptists, but from people outside the primitive Baptist. I, I don't read my Bible. That's why I pay my preacher to do. Well, that's why you've got so many people deceived in this world. For that very reason, the scriptures are to be read and studied by God's people so they will know if these things are true. You go to the book of Acts chapter 17, verse 11. There are some people known as the Bereans. And the Bible says the Bereans searched the word of God daily to see if these things were so. They were Bible readers. They searched the word of God, not annually, not monthly or weekly. They searched the word of God on a daily basis. Now, um, so... I appreciate the wonderful, generous financial support this church has given Karen and I over the years, but you're not paying me to read this Bible for you, okay? <laughs> I'll read it, i study it, and I'll preach it, but I want you to read the Bible. I want you to read the Scriptures. I want you uh, to see these things. And if you don't read the Bible, you're going to miss out on some real gems in all the Bible, but I want to look at a few of those gems, Lord willing, this morning from the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, it's like having a little Bible within the entire Bible. There are a lot of things in the book of Jeremiah that you're going to read in the New Testament. Uh, great truths are very clearly taught, but you're going to find them taught in the book of Jeremiah. For example, we believe strongly in 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, We have a more sure word of prophecy. For the scriptures written aforetime were not written by a private interpretation. 
he says, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It says, the men God used to write the Old Testament were holy men, and they were moved by the Holy Ghost to write the things that they wrote. When Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, the word inspiration means God breathed. God chose men to pin down these words. So we believe in the divine inspiration of scripture. Uh, in 2 Samuel 23 and 2, it starts off by saying, These be the last words of the sweet psalmist of Israel. He says, The Lord spake by me, his words were in my tongue. Notice this, the Lord spake by me, he spoke, but he spoke by David. And he says, His words were in my tongue. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Again, just another verse teaching the inspiration of Scripture. But over in Psalms 12, 6 and 7, David says, The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Well, his words are pure words, meaning that every word that comes from the mouth of God was without corruption or pollution. They are pure words. The words of the Lord are pure words. And he says, just like a silver tried in a furnace of earth, as they put silver into a furnace to burn off the dross, to come out on the other side without any contamination, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, how many times? Seven times. Seven being the number of completion and perfection. Purified seven times. And he says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt uh, preserve them from this generation forever. Now, I don't know how things could be, uh, that could be any plainer than what the psalmist said. We believe not only in the inspiration of Scripture, we believe also in the preservation of Scripture. So let's look in Jeremiah chapter 36 just for a moment. In Jeremiah chapter 36, you're going to find where Jeremiah uh, has a friend of the name of Barak. And uh, his, Barak is his companion. He, he is Jeremiah's associate. Jeremiah uh, is, is confined, and so he gets Barak, and he speaks the words of God that he, God spoke to Jeremiah. He speaks unto Barak, and Barak writes them down in a book. That's kind of like what God did when he called men like Paul and Peter. He called them... Then impressed upon their minds the very words, I mean the exact words, the very words of God to write and to pin down. Like years ago uh, in the business world, the uh, boss, you might say, had a, uh, you know, the secretary to come into the office and he'd want to pen a letter. And he would tell her what to put down and to type. She may have typed the letter, but they were the words of her employer. They were not her words, they were his words. And so when the Bible writers, such as Jeremiah, Paul, and different ones wrote, these were not their personal words. These were words they pinned down, but these were the very exact words of God himself. So God speaks to Jeremiah. Jeremiah speaks to Barak. Barak writes the words in a book. Jeremiah tells him to go and read those words unto the people. When he did, the common people heard these words, and they were greatly affected by these words, as the words in God's word ought to affect us. They were greatly affected by it. They said, we'll take these words to the king. They took the words to the king. It was wintertime. And when the words were read to the king, he took out a penknife, and he cut the leaves of this book out and cast them into the fire. He didn't like what he heard. They're the words of God, didn't like what he heard. He thought he could just solve that by putting these pages of words into the fire. Now, I remember one time this woman told a preacher, uh, after he got through preaching on Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, Ephesians 1, uh, on predestination, she says, well, that's not in my Bible. He said, what kind of Bible do you have? She said, well, I got a King James translation. He said, it's in there. She said, no, it's not. He said, it has to be. She said, no, it's not. I took my scissors and cut them out. Took my scissors and cut them out. Like that was going to do away with the truth of what's contained in that. Now, Barak takes a penknife, same thing, cuts the leaves of the book out, cast into the fire. So you might think, well, he destroyed the Word of God. No, he didn't. He destroyed paper with words on it. But he did not destroy the Word of God. We find where God has Jeremiah write the same words again, but with more words added, and a new book is written. Here's a picture of how divine inspiration and also divine preservation works, you might say. Now, when somebody uh, asked me, and uh, you know, what's the, 
maybe the most important thing a person needs to uh, grasp or understand in order to understand the Bible. Then the answer that's usually given, and I agree with this, is the depravity of man, man's depravity. If you don't understand man's depravity, then the rest of the Bible is not going to fit together as it should. You've got to come to the point where you understand what depravity really means. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Notice this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Here's a verse that establishes man's depravity about as strong as any verse you'll find in the entire Bible. Now over in the Psalms, you'll find where uh, David writes and says, uh, rather Solomon in the book of Proverbs, excuse me, writes and he says, he that trusteth in his heart is a fool. Well, you can understand that if you read Jeremiah 17, 9. Why would you trust in something deceitful? If you trust in the heart of man, the emotions of man, your emotions will lead you astray. I don't know how many times I'll be sitting there maybe with the grandkids or something and we were watching uh, maybe a game and I said, I just got a feeling, I got a feeling he's going to miss his free throw and he makes it. What good did my feeling do? My feeling had no impact, did it? Or I might say, I got a feeling he's going to miss and then he makes it. I said, that's the value of feeling. I try to use that sometimes to illustrate you don't trust your heart. Your heart's deceitful. It will lead you astray unless you counter it with the word of God. The heart is deceitful above all things, not just among some things, above all things, the human heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, let's go to the Garden of Eden just for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, we find where God gave the first man of creation of all, Adam. He said, you need of every tree in the Garden of Eden freely, except one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in the day thou eatest of, thou shalt surely get real sick. I hope y'all realize I misquoted that. (laughs) Thou shalt surely die. There's a difference, isn't it, between thou shalt surely die and thou shalt really get sick. Or you should really get hurt. The Lord didn't tell Adam he'd get hurt, he'd get sick. He said, you're going to die. In the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. What did Adam do? He took the fruit when Eve gave it to him through deception of Satan. And he ate of that fruit. And I'm going to tell you, he died that day. You say, well, Brother Lawrence, I read where he lived after that day a number of years. He did. He lived to be over 900 years old. But he did eventually die a corporal death, didn't he? But he died two deaths when he transgressed God's law. God's going to drive him from the Garden of Eden. He's going to drive him out of it. And he's going to put there, the entranceway back into Eden, a flaming sword that turned in every direction to keep him from ever going back in there. Death means separation. He's separated from God. He's separated from the fellowship of God. Also, we look in Romans 5, 12, and Paul says, Wherefore, by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, death by sin, and death passed upon all men for all of sin. We're not talking about being hurt, not talking about being injured, not talking about becoming sick. We're talking about a total and complete fall where a man fell in death under the law of sin and death and would forever remain in that condition and position were it not for the grace of God. That's depravity. It affects his mind and his heart. I've already mentioned the heart, but we go to Romans 8 and uh, um, about 8 and 8. It says the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. There's the mind. Psalm 14, 1 and 53 and 1 says, The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. We believe in the depravity of man, that man is dead in trespass and sin, and there's no hope that he can recover from that. First of all, he doesn't even want to recover from that. He has no desire to recover from that. He has no love for God, no interest in God. All he has is a carnal mind, wants to live according to the carnal desires of a carnal heart and a carnal nature. That's his condition. Jeremiah nails it right here in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, doesn't he? The other thing that a person needs to do is study the Bible concerning what God says about himself. God describes himself in the scripture. And the God that I read about in the scripture is not the God I hear preached about a lot. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not the Christ of the Bible that I read and I study. We study two different Christs and two different Lords and two different Jesuses based upon my study of the Bible. 
The Bible describes God by the standpoint of establishing his attributes. The attributes of God. If you understand the attributes of God, begin to understand who God is, how the Bible describes God, how God describes himself in his word, it will go a long way in refuting a lot of false doctrine. Okay? For example, let's go to Jeremiah 23, 23. In Jeremiah 23, 23, the Lord asked three questions. He said, am I a God at hand and not a God afar off? Can any man hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Do not I feel heaven and earth? Thus saith the Lord. It's the Lord who asked these three questions. Am I a God afar off and not a God nearby? Well, no. He's God either place. That shows his omnipresence, you see. The attribute of God's omnipresence. Can any man hide himself in secret places? I should not see him. That's God's omniscience. God sees all, knows all. There's nothing hid from the eyes of God. No matter how much you might try, it's an impossibility to do so. Do not I feel heaven and earth? Again, there's his omnipresence. Do not I feel heaven and earth? Yes, indeed, he does. We believe the Bible teaches his omnipresence, his omniscience very clearly. You go over to the 17th chapter, just for one example, in Matthew, and you're going to find where the Lord tells the apostle Peter to go down to the Sea of Galilee and cast his hook into the water. And the first fish he catches will have a coin in his mouth. And he says, you take the coin and go pay the taxes. How did the Lord know that there was a fish in the Sea of Galilee with a coin in his mouth? He knew. Somewhere along the line, somebody lost a coin and the fish liked it and he put it in his mouth. He didn't swallow it. It's in his mouth. How did he know that where Peter went to cast a hook in, that fish would be there? Because he's the Lord and he's omniscient. And you find where the Peter goes, does what the Lord says, put his hook in. First fish he catches, he pulls it out. It's got a coin right in his mouth. It's sufficient enough to pay the taxes, both him and the Lord, exact amount. Uh, it can give illustration after illustration in the New Testament of the omniscience and also the omnipresence of God. John 3.13 is an interesting verse. For the Lord himself said, No man has ascended into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of God who is in heaven. Notice the word heaven used three times here. No man has ascended into heaven, you say, did not Elijah ascend into heaven? Did not Enoch ascend into heaven? Yes, but not on their own power. They were taken. No man has ascended into heaven. That is, no man has the power to do that, never has done that. But he, the Lord Jesus Christ, that came down from heaven, even the Son of God, which is in heaven. <laughs> he says the Son of God is in heaven, and the Son of God who's saying this is on this earth. He was on the earth, but yet he could say he was in heaven. He's the one who came down from heaven. He's the one that would go back to heaven. He's the only one who ever could do that, had the power to do that, and didn't do that. That shows the omnipresence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for that great truth. Jeremiah expressed it here in Jeremiah 33 and 33. Now let's go to the second, uh, 32nd chapter of Jeremiah for a couple of lessons. You're going to find where the Lord tells Jeremiah that his uncle's son, which would be his cousin, is going to approach him to sell him a parcel of land. That chapter opens up by telling me that Babylon has come, the Babylonians have come, and now they occupy the city of Jerusalem. The land is in the possession of the Babylonians. So why would anyone think they could sell any land at a time like that? The Lord tells Jeremiah, your cousin's coming, he's gonna offer you some land, you buy it. You buy it. Why would anyone buy a piece of land at a time like that? Why would you want to go out and buy real estate, a piece of property, a piece of land, when the Babylonians have now are occupying the city of Jerusalem? This land's about two to three miles outside of Jerusalem, but it belongs to the family. God says he's coming. How did God know he was coming? Because God's God. And God is omniscient again. So sure enough, here comes his cousin, Got this parcel of land offered sale to Jeremiah. Jeremiah buys it. I'm sure he had, that cousin thought he was the shrewdest fellow on the earth. Imagine selling a piece of land under those kind of circumstances. What good's that land going to do you with the Babylonians in total control of the situation? I'm sure when others heard about that, Jeremiah was kind of a laughing stock. 
But Jeremiah did what Jeremiah was supposed to do. Jeremiah obeyed God by faith. And he purchased the land. And he tells Jeremiah, the Lord tells Jeremiah that he had two rights. He says, the right of inheritance is yours and the right of redemption is yours. This brings the subject of redemption in kinspeople, kinsmen into consideration that you will study a very important lesson when you read the book of Ruth. And it all points to our great kinsman, the Lord Jesus Christ, our near, great near kinsman, the Son of God, who had the right to redeem and the right of inheritance. I read over here in Ephesians 1, 7, where Paul says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Why do we have redemption? Because the right to redeem belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he redeemed. I read in second, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter um, 1, about verses 3, 4, and 5, where Peter says that we have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Why do we have an inheritance? Because the right of inheritance belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ is our inheritance. So Christ had the right of inheritance and the right to redeem as next of kin as our great redeemer. And that was the case with Jeremiah. Jeremiah does what the Lord tells him to do, an act of faith. Then Jeremiah begins to speak to the Lord. And uh, I want to just read this part of it to you. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah does what the Lord tells him to do. And then Jeremiah begins like this. In verse 15, he says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now, Jeremiah is telling the Lord what the Lord's already told Jeremiah, okay? Now, when I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Bark, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying, O oh, oh Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. That's God's omnipotence. There's nothing too hard for thee. Do you remember something similar to that found back in Genesis 14? When God told Abraham, when he was telling him about how Sarah was going to conceive and have forth a child, bring forth a child when she was 90, and God said to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jeremiah says, there is nothing too hard for thee. It reminds me of what Mary thought when the angel came and told her that she was highly favored of the Lord. And the Holy Ghost was going to overshadow her and the power of the Spirit of God was going to uh, enable her to conceive. And that holy thing she born of this should be called the Son of God. And Mary says, how should these things, that was the answer to Mary's question, how should these things be, seeing I have no one known a man? And when the angel gives the answer, Mary says, so be it according to the Word of God. If God's Word said it, it's going to take place, it's going to happen. Jeremiah says to the Lord, nothing's too hard for you, Lord. And here's how the Lord responds to that. In verse 26, Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And then he asked Jeremiah the question, Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing's too hard for the Lord. Now the Lord operates on the basis of his divine will, his divine uh, purposes. So everything doesn't always turn out necessarily like we might think they ought to or could or whatever, but we have to trust the divine wisdom of God and walk by the faith that God has given us to be faithful unto him. Jeremiah didn't understand why he was needing to buy this piece of land from his cousin, but he did it. Why? Because God told him to. That reminds me of the apostles in Luke chapter 5 when they'd been fishing and Christ came where they were at. And the Bible says they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. And the Lord tells them, go launch out into the deep and let your nets down. Peter says, Lord, he said, we toiled all night and caught nothing. But nevertheless, at thy word, we'll do it. That's all you need to go on, my friends, is what God's word says. God's word says it, just do it. Don't try to figure it out. Walking by faith doesn't mean God gives you all the answers, gives you all the explanations, and he gives all the details of the plan. If God says it's going to be, mark it down. It's going to be. 
So we see the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God taught clearly in the experiences of Jeremiah. We see the inspiration and the preservation of Scripture taught clearly in the book of Nehemiah. We see the depravity of man taught clearly in the book of Jeremiah. But let's take a look at the 17th chapter of Jeremiah just for a moment. And we read here, I think about verse 9, where the Lord says to Israel, Yea, I have, uh, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Yea, of old, it was said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. What kind of love do we preach to God's people concerning the love of God for his people? Don't we preach an everlasting love? Don't we preach that God's love for you and God's love for me and God's love for every chosen uh, person, every elect, every object of God's grace? Every single individual, one of them, has been loved personally and individually. What kind of love does God love you? He loves you with an everlasting love. That means it's impossible for that love to cease, impossible for that love not to continue on throughout all the trials of life. In the 13th chapter of John, we find where the Bible says concerning the Lord and his disciples, when the time of the feast of the Passover come, Jesus, he knew that his time had come for him to depart out of this world. He loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. He loved them to the end. If everybody would love their spouse unto the end, there'd be no divorces. If everybody would love one another as they are to, to the end, <laughs> there'd be no breaches of fellowship. The Lord loved his disciples to the end, even though one would deny him. And actually all denied him at one point. He loved his disciples all the way to the end, even though one wouldn't betray him. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end, even though they began to think among themselves who shall be the greatest right after he told them he was going to die. When he told them that he would suffer the hands of men, the chief priests, scribes, and elders would come and apprehend him, and he would go and lay down his life. They would crucify him and kill him. He'd be raised again the third day. What was their response? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing. But the Lord loved them anyway. The Lord loved them all the way to the end. To the end. Jeremiah says, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That's an expression used in the New Testament. John 6 and 44, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him. And I'll raise him again at the last day. You know how you came to the Lord initially? You were drawn to the Lord. You said, yeah, I was sitting in the pew and I heard the gospel and it moved my heart and I, uh, it just drew me to the Lord. Well, hopefully it did experientially, but that experiential drawing to the Lord never would have happened if you hadn't already previously been drawn to the Lord by the effectual working of his power. Called regeneration. He says, no man can come to me. Understand that? No man can come to me except the exception is given. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him and I'll raise him up again at the last day. That's the exception. You're an exception. You're an exception. You're an exception. You're an exception. I could put my finger at everybody here this morning and then turn it right here. I'm the exception. I would never come to the Lord. Wouldn't have the power to come to the Lord. Wouldn't have the ability to come to the Lord or the desire to come to the Lord. Why? Because I'm dead in trespass and sins prior to the drawing of God in regeneration. Let's take a look at something else here in this 32nd chapter. Um, actually, uh, uh, chapter 31, excuse me. Chapter 31 here in the book of Jeremiah. Look at verse 33. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. It will be, to, will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. In Hebrews chapter 8, way over here, over 600 years down the road, in Hebrews chapter 8, when Paul pins that letter down, he quotes exclusively from this verse I just read to you right here. He's writing to the Hebrew Christians of that day. Now, when he starts talking about the laws, before I say something about this, let me just back up a little bit and see what kind of laws God had given Israel. After God had formed and created the nation of Israel, he gave them three different types of laws. 
He gave them the moral all written on tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the ceremonial all written on paper, pinned down by Moses. The ceremonial law was the laws of God concerning worship, in other words. How they were to worship God with the offerings and their sacrifices and all the details associated with it. And then there was the civil law that God gave them to regulate their lives, to teach them how to live, how to behave when problems came, how to solve them. Civil law, moral law, ceremonial law, all given to Israel on stone or on paper. And of course, the laws that was given on stone, the Ten Commandments, they likewise was put on paper. Exodus chapter 20. Talk about a different kind of law here. See, the nation of Israel as a nation knew God and God knew them because God had formed them and created them. But not every single Israelite of the nation of Israel was a child of grace. All this was outward. All this was physical. God's going to do something inward. He said, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel in that day. He's talking about spiritual Israel now. That includes you. This is the law I'll make with the house of Israel in that day. He says, I'll write my laws in their minds and print them in their hearts. You go to Hebrews chapter 8. You can also find this written in Hebrews chapter 10 in reverse. So this is one of those verses, whichever way I quote it, I got it right. <laughs> I just need to be sure to get the chapter with it correct. But I'll get it right. He said, I'll write my laws where? In their mind. Print it in here. Or I'll write it in here and print it up here. So what kind of law we're we talking about? Romans 8, 1 tells us this. It's the spirit of the law of life in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation of those who walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. For this is the spirit of life, uh, this is the spirit, this is the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is when God gives you life, vitally speaking. This is when God lifts your heart and your soul out, takes out the heart and stony heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. This is when that old deceitful heart, my friends, that's desperately wicked, is removed out of your system, so to speak, and replaced with a heart that can love God. Now don't misunderstand because you still got the old human nature abiding with you. You're still going to have the conflicts. You're still going to have the, the problems. You're still going to have the warfare that you're going to have to deal with on a, single, on a daily basis. Not a day that goes by that you're not going to have a struggle inwardly with your human nature battling against your spiritual nature. But now you've got a nature that is superior that can overcome the old man. The new man can overcome the old man, you see. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made you free from the law of sin and death. Christ had now printed his law in your heart, wrote it in your mind, printed it in your mind, and wrote it in your heart. Now you're alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer shall any man teach his brother or his neighbor to know the Lord. Why? Because they all shall know me from the least to the great. See, there's two different types of knowledge taught in the Bible. There's intellectual knowledge. I'm trying to give you some of that this morning. <laughs> But it'd be of no issue to you this morning if God hadn't already given you another kind of knowledge right in here, the kind that John 6, 45 speaks about. When the Lord says, written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. You love, if you love the Lord, it's because you've been taught of God to love him. God has taught you in your heart. God has put his divine nature inside of you. God has put that spiritual divine nature on the inside that now has the capability of loving God and trusting in God and having faith in God. That's the spirit. That's the nature. Now God has planted within your heart and soul where he wrote these laws in your mind and printed them in your hearts. No, man shall, no longer shall any man teach his brother or his neighbor to know the Lord. Why? Because they all shall know me. How can they all know him? Because God's going to teach them in the heart. 2 Timothy 1 and uh, 19, the foundation of God standeth here having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let him that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you call upon the Lord and you manifest a desire to follow Jesus Christ and you uh, uh, believe that you indeed belong to him, then you need to depart from iniquity. Let him that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Why? Because the foundation of God standeth sure. How sure? Completely sure. How sure? Totally sure. I'm quite, <laughs> it's quite interesting to me to find out just how sure some people are once you get to talking about the surety. 
Somebody says, uh, you know, somebody's looking at somebody in a lineup. You see that man that robbed you? Oh, yeah, number three. Are you sure? Well, yeah. Are you really sure? You know, we're going to arrest him if you're not sure. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, you know, as a penalty for misidentifying somebody on purpose. Well, you know, I'm just not really that sure at all. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, I'm not quite sure as I thought I was. How many times does people get depressed about how sure you were about something? The next thing you know, you're not even sure at all, period. But I'm telling you, this is sure. The foundation of God stands sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Jeremiah had regeneration down pat, didn't he? Let's read a little further because he's not going to teach regeneration. He's going to teach preservation. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the orders of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. In that marvelous language, the Lord gives a sun for a light in the daytime, and the orders of the moon and the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Well, it's a known fact that the, the moon has an effect on the tides of the ocean, doesn't it? Then he says, by the way, the Lord of hosts is his name, if you didn't know that. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. He said, these things that I created in the very beginning, when I created the sun and the moon and the stars, if they should ever cease, then Israel would cease. The point is, Israel can't cease because they won't cease. How many sons have, how many times has God replaced the sun? How many times did the sun begin to burn out and God said, well, I need a new sun. I just replaced that sun with a new sun. And the moon's not shining quite as bright as it once did. I think I'll just replace the moon with a new moon. And the stars, they're not glittering like they once did. I guess I'll just have to replace the stars with a new star. God's never replaced one star, the moon, or the sun since he created them. If they can be done away with, then Israel can be done away with. That's preservation. Continue reading. Verse 37. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, which it cannot be, and the foundation of the earth searched out beneath, which it cannot be. I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they've done, saith the Lord. You cannot, the earth has never been totally searched out and heaven cannot be measured, not by man. God can, man can't. I love Isaiah chapter 40, about verse 12, when he says the Lord, uh, you know, concerning creation, the Lord has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He has met out the heaven with a span. Now, see, that's a span. Is you, when you open your hand like this, it's from your thumb to your little finger. That's a span. Now, God measured out by span. God can measure heaven, but you can't. God knows how many said is by the seashore, but you don't. God knows how many stars are in heaven, but you don't. God can comprehend the dust of the earth, but you can't. And the reason you can't do that is used it or tells you you can't do that so you will know you cannot number the family of God. I know how many people is going to be in heaven. I know it. The Lord told me how many. Not numerically. The Lord said in his prayer to the Father in John chapter 17, opening verses, I was giving him power all flesh. He should give you eternal life to as many as I was given him. That's how many is going to be in heaven. As many as the Father gave to the Son. Numerically, I can't tell you. No one's ever seen the Lamb's Book of Life. No one's ever counted all the names in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's an impossibility. Here Jeremiah teaches the doctrine of regeneration, but also the doctrine of preservation. For the last few Sundays, our prayer verse has been along the lines of preservation. How the Lord's people are preserved. I'll just give you one here. John 6, 38 and 39, the Lord said, All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I'll know why I was cast out, for I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, there it is again, all he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. The Lord's people have eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's people are preserved in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all whom Christ represented, 
This is a glorious doctrinal truth. For all whom Christ died for, for all whom Christ represented on Calvary, for all whom Christ paid the sin debt for, will one day be in glory without the loss of one. That's why I drive 100 miles to come to church every Sunday if it required it. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear the truth about the matter. I want to hear the truth about God's glorious grace. I want to hear the truth about God's electing grace, God's uh, uh, preserving grace, and God's uh, eternal security He has for His children here. I want to read about how God never fails in regenerating one of His people. That God, uh, you're the object of His love, and God quickens you. You're quick and made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to read about the second coming of Christ and hear the truth preached about that. Uh, in fact, let's go to uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. In verses 10 and 11, remember God has promised that they're going to go into Babylonian captivity, but he also promised they'd be there for a period of time that equals 70 years. Not 60, not 65, 69, 71, or 75, but 70 exactly. At the end of 70 years, the Lord has promised to bring them back. The Lord has promised to bring the remnant back down into the land of Palestine, back to the land of Canaan. He's promised to bring them back and restore them back and give their lands back to them. That's why he had Jeremiah buy that piece of property that I told you about earlier. Why did he have him to buy it? Because one day Jeremiah could till it. They were coming back. And that set the example for the others of what God had promised. Said the time's going to come. They're going to be restored. And their fields they will tend. Their vineyards they will, uh, you know, glean from. Uh, all these things. They'll go back like it was before this ever happened. And then God was going to judge the Babylonians as that evil nation. So we come to Jeremiah 29, verses 10 and 11. And the Bible says, I know the thoughts that I have thought about you. Even thoughts of, not thoughts of evil, but thoughts of peace. See, when God thinks, he never forgets what he thinks. Now, when man thinks, several things happen. Man overthinks. <laughs> then man thinks and forgets what he thought. And then sometimes man doesn't even think at all. How many times have parents had to tell the children this? What were you thinking? <laughs> the implication is you didn't think. What was going through your head? What was going through your mind? What was going between your ears? <laughs> Does anything really exist up here? <laughs> but God knows his thoughts. And God doesn't overthink. God doesn't forget what he thought. God's thoughts are right here in the mind of God. He never forgets them. I know the thoughts I'll think towards you, not thoughts of evil, but thoughts of peace. Now God brought evil upon the nation of Israel when he brought them into captivity. But his thoughts were not evil thoughts toward them. That was for their benefit. That was God's judgment and chastisement upon this nation. His thoughts of them was thoughts of peace. He says, to give you an expected end. See, God's promises. This is all up. This book, uh, Jeremiah 33, 3. The Lord said to Jeremiah, Call upon me and I'll show thee great and mighty things. God can do that because he's omnipotent. God is the God of all the universe, the God of all creation. He can intervene and overrule and override any time that he so desires in his gracious providence. He says, Jeremiah, you call upon me and I'll show you great things. I will show you mighty things. Why? Because he's a great God and a mighty God. He says, the thoughts I have towards you are not evil, uh, thoughts of evil, but they're thoughts of peace to give you an expected end. Well, the immediate fulfillment of that was in 70 years, they could expect to be restored back to the land of Israel. Why? Because God said he was going to do it. So that was an expected end. But I think it reaches far further than that down the road in the future. I think it reaches right into our present day right here. What's your expected end today? Somebody says, Brother Lawrence, I want to talk to you about eschatology. That's the doctrine of future events. End times. <laughs> Mine's real simple. I expect a lot of things to come to an end. <laughs> I expect a lot of things to end. Thankfully. I expect the time to come when this world's going to end. I expect the time's going to come when my life is going to end. From a natural perspective... I believe in the end times, right? I believe there's coming a day, a resurrection day. 
I believe there's coming a time when the Lord's going to come again at the last day. There's going, you know, the Lord said, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The one who originated all things and created all things is going to bring all things to an end. It's pretty simple. It's not complicated. It's not mystical. The Lord set up a kingdom that will have no end. That's true. And he gives you everlasting eternal life. It has no end. All of that is true. But I have an expected end, brethren. What helps me get by day by day here in this old world in which I live? I expect there to come an end to sorrow. I expect there to come an end to problems and tribulations and trials. I expect, there, I expect that there will come an end to heartache, don't you? Are you glad you have that expectation that there will be a day when no heartache shall be? There will be a day when sorrow shall not exist. There will be a day when trial shall not be your experience. There will be a day when you will not have pain in body, a pain in soul, a pain in your heart. There's coming an end to all of this. I have an expected end to all of that. And I have expected in one day when my body is lying in the cold, cold grave that a voice will speak and my body will hear and it will rise from the grave and be reunited with my soul and spirit and heaven will be my home and I'll take my flight like the wings of a dove. I haven't expected in, don't you? I haven't expected in and I believe it will come to pass because the one who's promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23, the writer encourages us to maintain our profession of faith. He says, we should strive concerning our profession of faith to keep it. He says, because he that hath promised is faithful. Did it come to pass? It did. Israel spent 70 years in captivity. Did he replant them back down? In Palestine, in Canaan, yes, he did. Did Jeremiah root up and pull down and destroy? Yes, he did. Did he build and he plant by the providence of God? Yes, he did. He was a faithful servant, one of those faithful servants you're ever going to read about in the Word of God. Jeremiah went through all kind of sufferings and agony, my friends, uh, but he relied on God, he trusted in God, had faith in God, what God had told him. It was going to come to pass. And even though he was placed in prison, placed in dungeons, placed in pits, he was delivered time and time and time again and they never penetrated the strong city that God told Jeremiah he was going to be. You can depend upon the Lord. You can count upon him. Everything else, my friends, is just a disaster. <laughs> I just make it plain and simple. Everything else in this world is just disaster. If it hadn't happened today, it'll happen tomorrow. <laughs> If it don't happen tomorrow, don't give up. It'll happen the next day. I assure you, it's coming down the road, my friends. But when you depend upon the Lord and count upon the Lord and lean upon the Lord and trust on the Lord, you'll never experience a failure in your experience with Him. If you haven't read Jeremiah, read it again and read it carefully. There are several other things I kind of wanted to say, but I guess I'll have to wait till another time. But it... One thing about it, it's preserved. <laughs> it won't spoil with it. <laughs> Thank you very much for your good uh, attention.